Hi, Diana. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, so to start with, um, we always ask what your kind of relationship personally and professionally is to mental health. I have been working in the field of mindfulness for probably the last 20 years, um, practicing it myself for 30 years. And to me, mindfulness is, it's, in some ways, it's one of the best mental health strategies I can think of. And it's, of course, not the only mental health strategy. And it's also not only a mental health strategy, but it's really in terms of mental well-being and emotional well-being, mindfulness is, um, you know, what I teach and what I uh, deeply believe in. So I would say that's my relationship. And then, you know, I've been working in the field and training teachers and also, um, you know, have personal stories of family members with mental health issues. So I'm definitely deeply concerned about it. And how did you kind of get into the the mindfulness and meditation field? What was the the kind of initial attraction? With um, Buddhist meditation practices, I got started right after college. I was traveling around India and ended up at a monastery in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama has his government in exile. And I got interested in um, Buddhist meditation, and I started practicing that. And shortly went to Thailand and got exposed to mindfulness, also in a Buddhist context, and then just really fell for it and started practicing very significantly and then um, and then did that for many many years got trained as a Buddhist teacher but about a decade or so ago realized that I was very interested in how broadly these teachings could be taught and brought into a larger context that wasn't purely Buddhist and that they were techniques and practices that could be used by anyone regardless of their background and so that was what um, led me to working in the mindfulness field. Okay, so looking at it from a more kind of secular point of view. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And b- before that, did um, I've read that you spent time as a nun? Um, how what was what was that like? Um, both to live in a foreign country. Well, in the late nineties, I spent a year living as a Buddhist nun in Myanmar which is, um, we called it Burma back then. I still do, actually. Um, And I was living in a forest monastery, kind of the jungle-ish outside of Rangoon, about an hour from Rangoon. And I was practicing. I was spending the year practicing as a nun. And it meant that I was doing intensive meditation practice. So getting up in the morning and meditating Um, before breakfast for like an hour and then sitting meditation walking meditation until lunchtime and you had to because I was the rules of the monastery for everyone but also especially for the monastics was that you had to stop eating after 12 noon so you um, fasted the rest of the day but you kind of got used to it Um, and then I was just practicing and I would meet with a teacher periodically to get instruction there would be some lectures but mostly I was kind of in this little jungle hut meditating and um just to briefly there's many many things I could say but it was it was an incredible experience it was completely challenging and um I didn't love the conditions the food and the um it was incredibly hot and there were lots of 
spiders and snakes and scorpions and you kind of had to learn to work with this you know, as well as your own inner experience right so there's like the outer all the bugs and snakes and then internal snakes if you want to call it that so I was definitely um, learned to have a capacity to handle many, many things. And of course, was really, really grateful to be able to spend that year devoted to my practice. And when you're practicing as a nun in those countries, and um, you know, a lot of the Buddhist countries are different, they have different rules around this. But for us, you could ordain, you could become a nun or a monk for a day or a week or a year. So it's kind of part of the tradition. A lot of the people in those countries do that as a, as a kind of short term project. And what was it easy to kind of to kind of transition back into, um, I suppose, a Western kind of lifestyle when you've been in such a, a different kind of environment where you were doing those things and, and not eating after 12 and getting up early to to meditate? How did you find your practice transition back into back into, um, I suppose, what your life was like before? Yeah, it was not easy. Right. It was. I mean, I spent some time living in India and teaching at a school and teaching mindfulness to children at that point. And then coming back to the States, I was overwhelmed. The big transition that had happened in the years that I was gone is that before I left, nobody had a cell phone. And when I got back, everyone had cell phones. So can you imagine it just shifting like like that? And then I was—I remember being overwhelmed by the choice. I mean, you go into a supermarket and just see 40 kinds of cereals, and it was... It was a lot of sensory stimulation, and um, and then in some ways it was great to be back. And but there was always this longing for the solitude and the peace that, of course, you can never fully have when you're living in the midst of daily life. But it was in the end I adjusted, and probably I'm very similar to how I was. That you, you know my lifestyle is similar to how I was. Okay, and and did you kind of transition into into writing and journalism? around mindfulness and meditation after that or was there kind of a gap in between where you did other things um well i think when i got back i had um that was when i started being trained as a meditation teacher and then i was also i was that was and i was asked to write a, a book for teenagers which i did wide awake buddhist died for teens but i did that kind of right when i got back um, so I started writing and teaching pretty soon after coming coming back from that year. You just mentioned wide awake for teens. That was did did you see a particular issue when you came back with with a younger generation and around their kind of focus and concentration and mental health? Um, and what kind of how do you think um, mindfulness and meditation can help teenagers now? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely concerned about teenagers. I had been working for many years on a teenager retreat that we had started in the early 90s. I, I, didn't, I wasn't one of the initial people, but I came on soon after. And it was like a five-day meditation retreat where teens would not do what I was doing in silence for a year or anything, but they were um, there was a lot more interaction and activities and such. But it was this very profound experience for young people, and we saw the way in which they would come to these, um, you know, come to the come to these retreats and connect with people who had a similar approach to life and interest in spirituality and questions of health and well-being and so 
and 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 really have depth experiences over these five days. So I have been doing that for many years. And so that when I got to um, when I was at, invited to write this book, it was drawing on all of that information. So I knew the benefit. I know that mindfulness can help teens. And of course, we know, I mean, these days, I mean, that was 20 years, well, my book came out 15 years ago. <laughs> One thing about my book, um, people are still buying it quite a bit, but it doesn't have anything about the internet in it because there was no internet when I wrote the book. I mean, there was, but there was no, you know, nobody was using it in the way we are now. Yeah, I was I was about to ask that. It was it was probably before uh, kind of people became more glued to their phones with kind of apps and things. And oh yeah, there were no, you know, there was no iPhone. It was pre-iPhone, right? So do you think you'd adapt the book now to to kind of uh take in more of that kind of stuff with the different kind of pressures? Um I would if I were to do an updated version, I would have add a chapter about that for sure. Um and, but I, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder 15 years later, are teens in worse state than they were before? And I know the incidences of mental health issues, anxiety and depression in young adults has gone up significantly, um, just even over the last five years or so. So I'm assuming that more and more teens could benefit from these practices like mindfulness, and I'm, you know, I'm very heartened to see the many approaches that people are doing to bring mindfulness into school systems and to working with adolescents. Yeah, and you can see it in the states, kind of filtering into school systems. Yes, yes, definitely. Brilliant. Um, so that's kind of um, the teenage bit, and then um, am I right that you wrote your second book was fully present? Yes, that's right. And that kind of encompasses a more of a scientific exploration of how meditation and mindfulness can affect our brain and body and can you give us like a top-down uh, I suppose a brief explanation of the kind of big benefits that that these practices can 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 provide you sure um, so I co-wrote that book with a scientist we it's the subtitle is the it's fully present the science the art and can't even remember <laughs> the art and science of mindfulness um, and so she wrote the science part and then I wrote the practical part, like how to do it. But I can, I'm happy to give you uh, just a kind of quick layperson's understanding of it. But the, there's one thing to keep in mind about the science of mindfulness is that it's, it's, it's hyped quite a bit. There's a lot of, oh, this exciting new study came out, but it's still a very young field. And while there's about three to 4,000 studies of people researching mindfulness. If you were to look up how many studies are there for how heart disease is impacted through exercise, you would probably find about 65,000 studies. So you can get a sense of that, that this is a growing field. It's a very promising and exciting field, but lots needs to be re replicated with larger sample sizes. Um, so, and appropriate control groups. But Mindfulness is helpful with uh, for mental. For, well, let's start with physical health. Physical health is stress-related conditions like high blood pressure. The research shows that it's helpful. It's helpful for pain. In fact, some of the most robust research is around chronic pain. It's the most studies that are out there really helpful. Um, That's how I came into um, into mindfulness and meditation was through chronic pain. Um, oh, and I've great. said yeah. So I I've said it before, but um, I the way I got into it was through my uh, psychologist who recommended it to me um, 
and I was kind of saying to a couple of previous guests that I thought how um, when I had this well I still have it but when it's when I when he suggested um, mindfulness for treating an issue that I that had been going on for two or three years um, you know he when he suggested kind of focusing on the breath blah 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 I kind of thought you know how the, how the hell is this going to help um, but it was actually something that I found really helpful um, and a couple of guests we've had on previously have, have talked about how um, although the there's a sometimes mindfulness and meditation is put out there as a kind of solution to all of your life's woes um, actually for chronic pain um, it can be pretty good um, but, I, but I suppose that's what you were you were kind of touching on there yes and I'm so glad that it's been helpful to you because it is it's really shown people with chronic pain ways of really as you know tolerating the pain if not a symptom reduction that's what the research shows and and just like the quality of life improving even with the chronic pain um, so yeah the physical physical um, health related conditions that have to do with stress inflammation it boosts the immune system it improves the healing response there's a lot of interesting research around the physical aspect of, of mindfulness and then mental health there's also quite a bit of research on that and again robust research around anxiety and depression mindfulness is really helpful for working with ruminations um, it's not the research doesn't show that it's helpful for very, very severe anxiety or depression, mostly because it's hard to try it. It's hard to meditate if you're very deeply in the um, midst of, of, you know, anxiety and depression. But for moderate or low level, it, it, there's a lot of research on that, looking at um, depression relapse and how mindfulness can be helpful, looking at also um, quality of life again and and there's some studies, I mean, mindfulness, as you probably know, it's been incorporated into a lot of clinical treatments because it's shown to be so successful, like cognitive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. So they're using elements of mindfulness to enhance either existing protocols or developing new ones with mindfulness fairly central because it, uh, it seems to be helping people. Um, and then other research looks at looks at attention and mindfulness can help people with with ADHD. When I was first hired at UCLA, we were looking at I was hired to work on a study with adolescents and adults who had ADHD and there was some significant improvement over the course of 8 weeks in people's ability to focus, especially um the kind of attention, conflict attention, when you're trying to pay attention to one thing and you're, um, there are other things competing for your attention. And then I, I would say that some of the most um, you know, cutting-edge research is around neuroscience and mindfulness. And so what is the impact on our brain? And what the research shows, I mean, one of the early studies looked at advanced meditators, people who had been living in caves in the Himalayas for 30 years, and they looked at their brain and they compared it to people of the same age range. And I, I, you may or may not know this, but as you age, your brain thins out, and um, it's called age-related co uh, cortical decline. But in the advanced meditators, in certain parts of the brain, they didn't find this happening as people, like, as it was happening in people of the same age range. And so... 
this are happening, particularly in the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is what we think of as the CEO of our brain. Like it's responsible for executive functioning, for delayed gratification, working memory, flexible thinking. And that didn't seem to thin out. Um, however, you know, it's, you know, those are early studies. And you're probably thinking, well, what about the listeners who've never even tried it before? So what? But there are some studies looking at novice meditators and seeing brain changes in similar areas in just about eight weeks of practice. And I think it was an average of 27 minutes a day of mindfulness practice. So anyway, that's a that's a brief overview. Yeah, that's that was really helpful. Um and just touching back on what you were saying about the the really experienced meditators, um, that the research on that is fascinating. I think they're described kind of as like um, the kind of ten thousand hours Olympic level meditators, um, and they've they've brought them over to the US to do kind of brain scans and things, and they've shown some really cool stuff there. Um, so, and and I suppose your side of the book was looking at how you can bring. Um, mindfulness more to kind of everyday life things um, and what advice would you have to to people uh, to people looking to do that yeah I was I was doing a lot of meditation instruction throughout the book and how we might use it to work with emotions and pain and difficult thinking and then there's and then a lot as you're mentioning on daily life so ways of bringing mindfulness into into life whether it's when we're talking with another person or when we're washing dishes or um, doing daily activities or taking a walk. I mean, there, there's so many opportunities for mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness is a meditation practice. It's cultivated through meditation practice. And by the way, just to back up a little, because this is sometimes confusing for people, but meditation is a big category like sports is a big category, right? Under sports, there's hundreds of types of sports and so many variations in those different sports. And meditation is a big category with maybe not hundreds, but dozens and dozens of types of meditation. So mindfulness is one of them. It happens to be very popular right now, but it's, of course, not the only, only type of meditation. So mindfulness is... Um, my mindfulness is both a meditation practice. It's also a quality of attention that you can bring to any moment. So I was mentioning daily activities where you can use it. And one of my favorite ways of bringing it into daily life that I recommend to anybody, even if they're just getting started, is we, we call it STOP practice. And it it's an acronym that stands for STOP, take a breath, observe, and proceed. And so if you're in the middle, you're starting to feel a little anxious about something or you get irritated or, you, you know, instead of, instead of, if you notice it, you can remember, oh yeah, I can stop. So you would stop and then everybody who's listening can try it with me right now. You can just stop and take a breath and then observe what's happening inside me right now. My heart is racing, my stomach is clenched or, you know, I'm hearing the sound of birds. I feel my feet on the floor. And then proceed, and when you pee, proceed, you proceed with more awareness. And this can be done very quickly in the midst of life, and it's just a wonderful way to kind of connect you with yourself and help stop the, the kind of uh, flow of upset mental activity, shall we say. Yeah, it's about kind of checking in with yourself um, 
yeah so my another thing on a similar kind of thing my psychologist said to do that to I actually used to set it um because I found I found kind of sitting desk working quite tricky with pain I used to set a timer for every 10 minutes and you, when it used to go off I used to stop kind of take three deep breaths and his thing was uh going through your senses and noticing kind of what you could see hear smell taste and then just reflecting on how your body felt for a few moments before going back into doing some work so kind of taking that moment to kind of uh get yourself out of out of your thoughts and your rumination i suppose um but it sounds like a fairly similar kind of kind of thing exactly then did it work for you like how was it yeah absolutely it's it was one of the key things in kind of um in kind of building up um tolerance to kind of uh doing certain activities again so it would be kind of building up from a very low base and then taking time to notice how the body kind of felt when you've been doing it and and then restarting it again so kind of if you ever got kind of caught up in the moment or kind of started ruminating on pain or negative thoughts it would kind of help you able to just kind of snap and then restart again um so yeah i found that really really helpful Oh, that's great really happy to hear that you've got another book coming out am i right in march i do yeah um so that book is is it's again if i'm right it's about integrating mindfulness into everyday life um and i was wondering do you have any methods for you might have just actually said one but any methods for uh attracting people to mindfulness who think that they potentially that they can't sit still um and do it in that kind of traditional way um more kind of integrating it into everyday activities yeah um well my book my new book is called um the little book of being and it's practices and guidance for uncovering your natural awareness and this book is intended to point people to awareness in any moment that yes we can it, it, it has a lot of meditation instruction in the book but also it reminds us that we all have the capacity to be aware and that it's really a matter of turning our attention to it at any moment and that the, this capacity is a natural human capacity and that we've all had experiences where we've had this quality of being at home, connected, at rest, at ease, a feeling of well-being. And oftentimes these happen in special circumstances like when I'm you know, walking out in nature or when I'm with a really close friend and just in this great joy of the connection, or sometimes they can happen in really ordinary ways, like you're just petting your dog or something and you just feel the sense of resting and being, right? So the book is pointing us to that and it's pointing us to, it gives a lot of instruction on how to deepen it through meditation practice. But the invitation really, I guess, is just just to, to, for, for our listeners to notice when is awareness already present? When is this kind of special thing that I'm seeking after, this sense of ease, it, it, it may already be here. And how do we begin to look for it? So I have a lot of different little practices to help point to to that. Yeah. Would you say it's a similar kind of feeling to when you hear like a sports a sports person saying that they're in the zone and they're kind of fully aware of exactly what's going on? Or is it more of a kind of resting um, awareness? 
No, it's very similar to flow, not exactly the same. You're talking about flow, right? When you're in you're in athletic activity and you're just right in the zone. There is that, I think they're very close relatives. I wouldn't say it's exactly the same, but very close. And what's different with um, awareness practices and what I call natural awareness is you're with, a, with an athlete, they might not know that they're aware. They're just in it. Right. But with natural awareness, we realize that, oh, awareness is happening. I'm here. And there's and so it just shifts the experience just slightly. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes you hear athletes say that when they have an exceptional performance or something that they were just, you know, in that zone and they, you know, had no idea how they got there. Um, but everything was just flowing perfectly. So it'd be interesting if you could see kind of how what they did in their preparation to kind of get in into that zone and whether potentially doing something like mindfulness could help them access those areas uh, more frequently. Yeah, it's a great question. It might mess them up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I think it, I mean, we've, there's a lot of people teaching mindfulness to people in the sports field. And uh, there's someone, for instance, George Mumford is a guy who teaching, you know, about George he taught to the Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers and yeah there's a lot of great work being done with athletes right now. Do you think it's like important that um, you, you you said the Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers that that people see them doing something like mindfulness and they think oh actually if if you know oh my sporting hero is doing it that means I don't know if they've already had a barrier to doing it that they see it as a bit more kind of acceptable for that for them to do it or they're encouraged to do it a bit more absolutely i think the more we see people in the mainstream people we admire doing a practice that helps them it's certainly going to have a positive influence yeah and just to kind of start wrapping things up you mentioned that one of your current challenges is being mindful as a parent to a young kid and i was wondering what kind of advice what this how this kind of how these challenges manifest themselves and what advice you would give to parents that are firstly uh looking to start a practice that they haven't practiced before um and those that are looking to kind of get back on back on the wagon after they've kind of fallen off the practice maybe because they've had kids Mm. Well, I would say that parenting is one of the most intense practices there is. Um, I I think well, I, there's a number of things I could say. You know, for me, the edge with parent with parenting has to do a lot with the regulation of my emotions, right? So when am I just having an outburst at her because I'm just so frustrated? My daughter's nine years old, right? And so I'm just, oh, why did you do that? And, versus can I connect with myself and take a breath and talk to her in a way that is that is uh, reasonable and is not you know going to further incite her and so there's always so so I found that my mindfulness practice is tremendously helpful with that and just recently a friend was visiting and he's someone who's known me a long time and he's no, he's a meditator too. And he said, Oh, I kept watching you reset yourself. He said, I saw you that you were like about to say something and you kind of took a pause and said it in a different way with her. And, and then I also, another way it's so helpful for me as a parent is just watching my mind and the expectations and the stories that I carry about what I want her to be and how she, how come she's not you know, taking dance classes. I really wished I took dance. 
of when I was a kid and what's wrong with her and I'm going to sign her up and why doesn't she want, you know, these stories we constantly carry and just that reminder to come into the present moment and be with this child exactly as she is, you know, let to just appreciate her for who she is. She's not me, you know, and this is a huge practice for myself and for any parent. So those are some, just briefly, some ways it's incredibly helpful. And then I would say for parents, who are getting started um, or going back to it, you can use it throughout the day with your child, just like I was talking about. But also, if you can find any way to take a little bit of time for yourself, those five minutes even, just to practice meditation so that you are giving yourself something and that gives you more capacity to handle what's going on with your children because if we think it's selfish oh no I don't have time I can't do this it's selfish it's just it's you're setting yourself up right it's not a great idea and I think you may have you may have talked about this but our UCLA website mark um, the mark website has all sorts of free guided meditations including ones that are just five minutes we even have some three minute ones so that's a good way to get started and then as you get into it then you can do it for longer yeah and that's the UCLA mindful awareness research center yes yeah so just for listeners we we spoke to uh, to Marvin Belzer last week who's a colleague of yours yes he is yeah um so just to kind of wrap things up what does what does your current kind of practice look like and how do you keep yourself kind of um mentally healthy well i do a lot of things that support my well-being and one of them is trying to not work too much which is not easy to do because i run a big center and have a million things to do and i have a nine-year-old and you know a life but i'm always trying to figure out ways to be nurturing and kind to myself and and um and so, so it's not that, so that, that, that's an edge for me. Um, one of the ways that I've been practicing lately that's really been fun is we, um, my family adopted a dog and I, you know, I used to get up in the morning and meditate, but now I get up in the morning and I have to take him for the dog walk. And so at first I was a little resentful that he had messed up my meditation practice, but then I was like, wait a minute, this is going to be my meditation practice. And so I walk and I'm a little bit, you know, chaotic mind and he's chaotic too. And we're just trying to, you know, kind of gather ourselves. And after a while, I start being mindful of my feet on the ground, left, right, stepping, stepping. And I get into a rhythm of noticing. And when my attention wanders, I come back and and then after a while, I might notice myself connecting more with a natural awareness, just the sense of being, walking through the neighborhood and just being connected to the, the trees and the sights and the sounds and the breeze. And this happens pretty regularly now, most mornings. And I'm actually really grateful. It's like this whole new in vivo, you know, meditation and life practice that's quite joyful. Yeah. And I suppose that goes back to kind of integrating uh, mindfulness into kind of everyday things um, so where can we find out I think you've already mentioned about Mark but where can we find out more about you um, what and, and what you do okay so I mentioned Mark that's a good place to find out events and programs and we do have online learning programs and I often teach webinars online for people at a distance and I've been teaching a meditation group at the Hammer Museum it's a UCLA museum here in Los Angeles but it's always podcasts, so there are, there are probably 
130 minute meditations on online um, for people and then my own website is dianawinston.com and I have my new book featured there with you can download an excerpt and get more information about that and me brilliant Diana that's absolutely fascinating thank you it's wonderful to talk with you a lot of fun thank you hope you enjoyed this episode uh just a quick reminder that although we may find the stuff we talked about useful if you're struggling with your mental health always reach out to your local gp or health professional or contact a charity such as mind on 0300 303 if you need urgent help please visit a and e call nhs 111